Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll discuss book one of The Dark Tower, The Gunslinger, chapter four. Let's start the show. Great. Well, thanks, Jay. This is chapter four, The Slow Mutants. That's um, right. It's a short story that was originally published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction in July of 1981. Um, again, all of these stories were collected in 1982 after appearing in that magazine first. And in this chapter, Roland and Jay continue their quest for the man in black, now underneath the mountains. In the darkness, they first find railroad tracks and eventually a handcar that they use to ease their journey. During a rest period, Roland tells the story of his coming of age as a gunslinger. The next day, they are attacked by the titular slow mutants. Eventually, they reach the end of the railroad line, and Roland makes a decision. That means the end of a line for one of our characters. Uh, really? Hey, I calls them as I sees them. <laughs> End of the line, Jake. <laughs> oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> All right. I think after Tull, there was a lot of talking and journeying, but not quite as much action. It was uh, more analytical action that was happening in, in the Oracle in the Mountains, where the action happening there was more the psychic discussion between Roland and uh, the Oracle, right. right? And they see the... They see the man in black off in the distance, and they're climbing through the mountains, but there hasn't been a lot of action action, right? Right. This chapter gives us three big set pieces mm -hmm. that I think is worth discussing, because I found out of the whole book, other than the tall sequence, this is really where things pick up and are action-filled. So we've got uh, the first one is the flashback to Roland's test of manhood. Right, his coming-of-age story. His coming-of-age story that Jake wants to hear. Mm -hmm. And there's obvious parallels, I think, between that story and the story that's happening between Jake and Roland. Right. Um, there is the encounter with the slow mutants from the title. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, we get this dramatic reaching of the railroad car, Jake hanging off the edge, the man in black appearing, and lots happening there at the end. So really three big set pieces. Yeah, and you're right. For all of the intrigue and setup that the the book has given us thus far, this is the first time that it really sucked me in as far as like these action sequences. And I kind of was pleasantly surprised that as familiar as I am with the this book and this story, when I got to the the part of the story when Roland is telling about his his uh, test of manhood with Court, I couldn't put the book down. It totally totally, you know, swept me up in the story. And I just wanted to finish that part of it. And it wasn't until I got to that, the end of that section that I realized, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be like taking notes and stuff for, <laughs> yeah. for this. So I, I had to go back and, and reread it more analytically, but it's just so much fun to just go through that, that action piece. And I think, especially with that piece for me, it's interesting that in the earlier chapters, you get pieces of Roland's backstory and for me, at least, I want to sort of skip over that because it's not of the moment, like right. the story with Jake, like the story with the man in black, what's happening in the desert, what's happening in the mountain. And mm -hmm. so when he throws out these names and places that you don't have any reference for, 
there's a tendency to be like, okay, okay, where do I get to the good stuff, Steven? And now I was really sucked into the backstory of Roland. There's so much going on there from Roland finding out that his mother's having an affair Mm -hmm. with um, Martin. With Martin. Um, Martin being an advisor to his father, it's sort of out in the open and everyone in the society knows about it. You learn a lot more about the structure of the society. Um, Roland making a key decision to to test court for his manhood and the right to wear the guns. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to stay in that world more almost than I did in the world with Jake and the journey because it, yeah. I really got drawn in there. And I think there's like a the sharpest triangulation between Roland's backstory and Roland's present here because Jake is about the same age that Roland was. Yeah when he goes through this trial and Jake is suffering through a trial of his own. So it used up to this point, it's just been random moments in Roland's past, like, Oh, this happened or, Oh, I I remember this character. But now it's like, he's living through this point in his life that Jake is now living through. And we get to see and compare how each of them gets through this, this moment. Right. And of course we learn that Roland was, successful in in a magnificent way um maybe not so much for jake <laughs> but that's i think that's also a, an interesting parallel between the, the two characters yep so. and jake just really lays into roland yeah at the end of the story there's a couple places where he just oh sure you're all about you know because at one point i think roland mentions that there was a girl in another town and he he had to leave her behind, but he didn't want to. And Jake's like, sure you did. Mm-hmm. Oh, that great tower. You always have to be chasing that tower, yeah. don't you? So um, with all these stories, he's really poking at it because he sees, hey, this is the end for me. Like he mm-hmm. knows I'm just a poker chip. Yeah. I'm part and of your game. Feels like he's got nothing to lose anyway. Right. So what, why not just egg on Roland as much as possible? So to dig a little deeper into each of these sort of set pieces. So first is the piece with Roland and Court. And for me, the fascinating thing is the title of the book is The Gunslinger. Mm-hmm. Having guns is an important thing. Right. Being able to to use that as your weapon. And we saw it in Tull. But since Tull, we have not seen him use his gun successfully, except on a couple of rabbits in the mountains. Yeah. Uh, the guns aren't what makes Roland a man, specifically in this case, right? Like, that's the whole thing. Yes. You're going to become a man or you're going to be exiled forever from what's left of society. And it's interesting that the weapon that Roland chooses is an old hawk. It's a living thing. Yeah. It's a living thing. It's on the edge of, you know, the end of its, towards the end of its life. He Mm -hmm. actually sees himself as he says, I think I have to be the hawk. Right. To, to understand the hawk and be able to control the hawk. And so he sees there's an old hawk and I'm the young hawk. So he sort of pictures himself as that living thing. Um, And he is aware that it is a little bit of trickery. With court, yeah, I think he even says it's a like, little underhanded. A little underhanded. Court's caught off guard. At first, he seems a little unperturbed, and then he realizes, "Oh crap, I'm yeah, I'm in trouble here." I, I had not thought of this angle. <laughs> yes. Or were you? Does that put Roland in a different light for you? Are you concerned that, or do you see this as part of his building of characters to think of alternate routes to get to a solution? I'm sort of leading the witness because I know a big piece for you in our last episode was talking about Roland is sometimes portrayed as having a lack of imagination. And even earlier in the chapter, what pushes him to go for this test of manhood is Martin really sort of poking him, yeah, right? By he's, saying he's he, directly goaded into doing something that is going to end his career. Yes. If not his life. Yeah. So he Martin sort of 
is very upfront with the fact that he's having an affair with the, the mother mm-hmm. um, in Roland's face. Um, he says to Roland, are you going to be slow like your father or are you going to be are going to be a fighter or are you going, going to be, be slow very slow and he's like, i'm going to be, be both. both yeah but i think so in all those cases it we'll get this picture of roland is not being imaginative not being very smart a man of reaction and yet he has this somewhat cunning plan yeah to go so after a court that's why i think roland is constantly contradicting his own perception of uh, his perception of himself what and what the other characters in the book see him as and also the way that King continues to portray him. King puts in the narration that he, he lacks these things he, or he's not as good at certain things as others are. But then he does all these things and he, he keeps coming out on top. It costs him sometimes. Mm-hmm. It, costs him, it seems like it costs him most of the time. It costs him something. It costs him some, some part his of his friendship, his the soul. women, yeah, his soul. You know, There's all sorts yeah, of pieces. Yeah. But uh, like, and, and even his use of David, the, the hawk, he knows like David's not going to survive uh-huh. this. And he has spent this Hawk's entire life befriending it, doing something that nobody ever thought was really possible. I said, you can't friend a Hawk. You no. can't, you can't train it to like you or, or even listen to your commands. Right. It's basically like, you know, the, the hood's off, get the thing Go in front it. of you. And then the hood's back on. That's, that's kind of it. And so he's managed to build this relationship and, and grow up with this bird. And then he, sends it to its death in the battle, yep. which is something that a good commander needs to be able to do. Send your troop off to die for the sake of winning the war. But he also, there is that element of trickery and, and cunning. And this is also Roland's first betrayal of a friend. Mm-hmm. We don't know how many other times he's done this, but we're being shown that he figured out that this is a means to an end by using a friend and even sending a friend to its death or mm-hmm. Hitler, in the case of, of David, the, the hawk's death to achieve his ends. Yep. And so that makes us start rubbing our chin. Like if we were having any doubts about what he might do with Jake, I don't think we have any doubts anymore. Especially when he talks about the girl yeah. right after he tells that story, the girl right. he left behind and Jake does it too. But what's interesting is we talked about how Martin's really goaded him into it. And we don't know all of the politics behind what's happening in Gilead, mm-hmm. but we're starting to see that Martin's involved in some way in trying to show, sow dissension between Roland's father, Stephen, right? Right. His mother, the whole sort of gunslinging. He's trying to k- br- yeah, bring they, things down from within. Right. And we don't know the master plan or if he's working for somebody or what mm-hmm. the end goal is here, but we could see that things are happening. And um, there's two pieces that I want to call out before we get into it. Is One is he says about his mother, what hand could hold the knife that kills? Oh, yeah. Right. So like, we know that somebody's dying in the future and we don't mm-hmm. know how. And then is the mother involved in any way? Because after Martin goads Roland into doing something, mm-hmm. she sort of cries out as if she knows what's going to happen. And Martin slaps her and says... Shut your quack, yeah. <laughs> which is a great line. Yeah, I kind of felt like it wasn't even that. Maybe I, I, I missed something there, but I think it was just that she was upset about what she knew Roland was going to do. Like she saw she saw the look in her son's eyes and she knew her son's personality. And all right, he just fell into this trap or, or he's a, he's about to do some damage to himself. And as a mother, she doesn't want anything bad to happen to him. I, I don't know if it was a reaction to other things in the future. Yeah, I don't know either, but it just seemed like she might, if she truly loved her son, she could have done something to stop it. Mm-hmm. You know, she is of a higher class than Martin. Yeah. 
and she could shut that down. She's obviously her, the, the son would respect her in some way. The second thing I was interesting. So the whole reason he does this is to get the guns, right? Yes. Like he wants the guns. We're under the understanding to shoot Martin probably. Right. Right. And the, the battle with court ends with court about to go into this coma because mm-hmm. he's, you know, had his face torn off, his ear torn off. And, and gotten his head bashed he, he, in. Bashed in and, and kicked around. And he's obviously about to, they say he's going to go in a, in a coma for a week. But he has one last lesson to teach. And that is, wait, let the word and the legend go before you. Let your shadow grow. Let it grow hair on its face. Let it become tart. Given time, words may even enchant an enchanter. Do you take my meaning, gunslinger? Mm-hmm. And something clicks and roll it. So this is another sense of the guns aren't your only tool. It also. Yeah, to, to continue your point, right, Roland's guns as a gunslinger are not his only weapon, and they're probably the least important of his weapons. And uh, I think that Court's advice, just like everything else Court has shared with him, is immensely important and immensely valuable. Every lesson that he gets, whether it's a punch in the face <laughs> or good advice like this, it's just, it's, it's really, really valuable to Roland's survival now and yep. And into the future. What I also found fascinating about Court's advice was that this gave us a brief peek from another person's perspective into what Roland society is like mm. and how maybe kind of everybody really does know what's going on here, whether it's about the affair that Roland's mother is having, whether it's about Martin's trickery and trying to subvert the government or, or the, the society in some way. This stuff is apparent and known to yeah. the citizenry. This is not just like a couple of people have a secret, but it's being done in a way that people can't just speak up or can't act out against it. Or maybe it's so pervasive that there's nothing that they could do. But this is the first time that somebody besides Roland gives us insight or an observation of the surroundings. And because uh, we get a couple of comments here in the, from his father in a previous scene, and we get the scene between Martin and and his mother in this moment, but it doesn't really give us that insight. When Court says, I know what's going on, it makes me think everyone knows what's going on. Yep. And and that's important. Yep. They make a big show of it in the cotillion at the beginning, right? Right. Although I also took it in another sense, and maybe it's just because of present day society that I'm thinking of this. I think it's Court or somebody says the world is going to move on, but not necessarily tomorrow. Right. And it's, it's almost of the fact of, yeah, but we'll worry about that down the line. There's nothing we can do about it now. Sort of the, the, the boiling water is getting hotter and hotter around the frog, but yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll eventually get out. So it almost seemed like, wait, a little disappointing that he gets that last lesson, but we don't get to see it play out, at least in this chapter. We don't know what those mm-hmm. words that might enchant an enchanter are. Um, right. A, another sort of piece I want to carry over. Anything else you want to talk about with uh, the manhood test or this flashback with Roland? One other thing I, I thought was important was that as soon as Roland passed the test and Court acknowledged him for the first time as Gunslinger, Roland realized that he was now different than mm-hmm. his colleagues, his other the other trainees. Yep. And even though he had grown up with these boys, and even though they they were technically on equal footing both in in society and in class, and in apparently in skill as gunslingers in waiting, he always felt that he was apart from them anyway. Mm-hmm. And this kind of confirmed it and extended it. He truly was different from them now because he had the title, he had the rank, and he was about to be given the guns. But I think that in his head, he was already there. 
and by becoming the youngest person to ever become a gunslinger, even besting his own father by two years, like that was a record no one was ever going to break. Right. Good. So the next big set piece is the slow mutants. So Roland and Jake find this hand car. Mm-hmm. After, you know, they're sort of this timeless. <laughs> that was a lucky break. Yeah, lucky. Or they realize it might have been there, but mm-hmm. Roland is, does has no idea what it is. He he can't imagine what would run on rails at first. And he just can imagine a bullet, of course, because that's what mm-hmm. his mind goes to, his guns. Um, they find this hand car that talks and does advertisements along the way. And they run into eventually, and again, we talked a little bit before about time and how time comes up a lot in in these stories. Stephen King mentions it a lot, the timelessness. So there's the timelessness in the desert, but at least they could understand and separate it based on the rising and falling of the sun. Now that they're in the caves, they have no idea when days begins and there's constant, they, they start to track things in sleep periods. And after one of these sleep periods, they encounter a group of slow mutants who seem to be some sort of humans who have been mutated in some way. They seem to have multiple eyes and yeah. tentacles in and, some and places. They're, all different. They're, they're, you know, every one of them is just a different sort of mass of changes and deformities. Yes. They all have the glowing green phosphorescence in common it seems right. like yes but everything else is and they're um, and they seem to have almost an adaptation to the dark you know like like some of them seem to be blind but know where they're going right and others seem to have giant eyes or multiple eyes and things like that so it's kind of like like a combination of nuclear fallout people and deep sea fish or yes. something like that so after we just spent five minutes talking about how the guns weren't as important to Roland, what gets him out of this situation is, in fact, yeah. Roland's use of the guns as he's able to shoot his way out um, and with the help of Jake moving the rocks. So the slow mutants obviously have some intelligence. They're able yes. to build a, a somewhat of a little bit of a blockade, not a big one, enough that Jake can eventually move it. For me, this is just sort of an action-packed sequence, right? Mm-hmm. You don't know what these things are. It's this horror. It, it reminded me of... Stephen King's The Stand when, I'm not going to remember which character it is, it's Larry Underwood, I think, is the, the oh, singer from New York. The he has to go tunnel. through the Lincoln Tunnel or yeah. Holland Tunnel, and there's just this creepiness as he's going through this mm-hmm. this tunnel that yeah. has a bunch of dead people and rats. And he The only thing that got me through that book was the fact that I knew everybody was just dead. <laughs> yes. Like, it's it was scary and spooky enough, but if there was a chance that one of them might sit up and grab at him, I I, yeah. I, I would have just been yeah. too creeped out to, to get. So to that me. that reminded me a lot of this yeah. section where they're going through this dark thing, and there's a river there, and there's something coming up, mm-hmm. and, and this was obviously very spooky. I'm looking at the trade paperback uh-huh. with illustrations by Michael Whelan. I'm showing you the illustration. Yes, this is. Uh, uh, I actually didn't like looking at that picture. These, this is so they're so creepy. I kept not looking at that page, yeah. and I was reading the opposite side. So, so what we're looking at is uh, three or four slow mutants grabbing Jake's uh, arm and trying to pull him down, while Roland is pulling him with one arm and shooting with the other. I did just a tad bit of research on this picture, and Michael Whelan has said. What he was trying to do is to create a scene where the only light was coming from the, the gun, gun flash. And uh, I think that that's a pretty... I think he does a pretty He good does job a really good job. It's a sort of a honey image. If you get a chance to look at it, and maybe we can post it on the website yeah. um, or a link to it. It's a, it's a pretty cool picture. I think we might be able to put it in the show notes. Anything else about this other than just sort of 
this is another instance of the world moving on these odd creatures that live in the A couple dark. of things. Uh, one is what you mentioned about the only light source was the gun flash that, that actually stood as a limitation to his use of the guns because mm-hmm. each time he fired the gun was another bright flash, which countered his night vision. Even though it was totally black, yep. it meant that all he could now see was these after sh- images, these after and- images of the gun gun sight. So then he he wasn't able to aim, he, like each time. So it was like a, a diminishing returns. He still seemed to be up, you know, able to hit everything he wanted to. Nevertheless, it seemed like there was a limit to how how often or how quickly he could shoot. Uh, the other thing was uh, two things that are kind of just what this the slow mutants remind me of in the scene the one was um in fahrenheit 451 there's a a scene when the the main character gets on a a public train and it's a little bit like minority report and a little bit like the hand car in the slow mutant scene where the advertising just kicks on you're Mm. they're constantly surrounded with this and i had i was just reading fahrenheit 451 after reading this chapter and there's the scene when the, the character gets on the train and the, this, the ad just starts saying, Denim's dentifrice. It'll <laughs> clean your teeth. Denim's dentifrice. And it's driving him mad because he's trying to think of something important and it's just like bombarding him with this useless advertisement. And that's kind of like what Roland was uh, exposed to when they first turned on the, the hand car was right. like an advertisement for, I forget what it was, chips or something. and. Uh, luckily, they, they they were able to turn it off, but it was driving them crazy too. Yep. <laughs> the other thing is another Futurama reference. Um, the there is an entire world of underground mutants in Futurama that mm. live underneath New New York, and these mutants are all different and they're all deformed in various random ways. And I feel like in some ways that was inspired by King's. <laughs> uh, in interpretation of the slow mutants, like these, like some of them have tentacle arms, some of them have no eyes, some of them have giant eyes, some of them have two heads. It's like they make a joke of it because it's a comedy, but it's right. it's exactly like this. You know, they're they're not all green and glowing, but a couple of them are. You know, so I couldn't help but think of the Futurama uh, sewer mutants. My mind went to the time machine. Um, one last thing on this is to get it back to Jake. He's constantly telling Jake things are going to be all right, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though things are not going to be all right. Yeah. And Jake knows things aren't going to be all right. And when they first encounter the slow mutants, I think they pass by and they see one. And Jake's like, oh, my God, what's that? And uh-huh. like, oh, it's just a slow mutant. Yeah. <laughs> hey, wait, come no on. <laughs> what, what's the biggie? And he says, I don't think they'll bother us. They're probably just as frightened of us as we are of. And then one of them attacks, of course, because mm-hmm. that's what you say to a kid, right? You say... Oh, don't worry about that dog barking. It's just as afraid of us, or that bee's not going to sting you. It's just as frightened of us as we are. But of but, course, that's not always the case. You try to make the kids feel better, mm-hmm. and they're going to end up dying anyways. <laughs> but from Roland's perspective, he's a deadly fighter with arm to teeth, and maybe slow mutants aren't something that's a big deal to him. You know, maybe he's encountered them before, and they've always been easily vanquished. I don't know. So, um, Maybe he is really just saying like, meh. Yeah. The other piece is Roland sort of thinks he has plot armor here too, doesn't he? I think it's mentioned in this chapter that he's like, they're, they're starting to run out of food in the cavern. And it just and he's like, he and the boy yeah. are like, we're not too worried about it because we know that our main event is with the man in black and we're not going to die before then. So, mm-hmm. or at least I'm not going to die, uh, Jake. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that, buddy. <laughs> 
All right. Um, so the third set piece is eventually they take the hand car into what looks to be a subway station of some sort or reminds right. Jake of a subway. There's multiple tracks, sort of all comes to this terminal mm -hmm. and tracks going different ways. There's languages above each one of the, the tunnels and Roland recognizes one that looks to be similar to the high speech that says this way out. Mm -hmm. So they decide to take that. They take the hand cart through after this, hey, I'm going to leave you behind, Jake. All right. And Jake eventually comes with him. But they take the hand car and they get to a point where they're in this giant cavern. Right. Um, and the river sounds like it's underneath them. And there seems to be a trestle and they're worried about the weight of the hand car. And they're going to have to traverse this via mm -hmm. walking. Yeah. Um, they start walking across and they can see that ties are breaking out. And eventually they're, they get to a point where they have to jump to get to yeah, places. Yeah, they have to start, they actually have to stop stepping and start jumping. Yes. And what happens is Jake has to, starts to fall and is hanging. And mm -hmm. of course, that's when the man in black appears. And this is where Roland has to make his choice, right? Yeah. The man in black lays it out for him very simply. You're going to come after me or you're going to save your boy? The boy. It's your choice. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on this? And I'm going to spring something on you I haven't mentioned before. Okay. Well, one of the things that, that I thought about for this is that Roland has first gotten the notion that Jake is a sacrifice. Then it was kind of told to him straight out by the Oracle. And from there on, he sort of had this inner argument with himself. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Kind of, And he was almost half convincing himself. There's another way. There's another way. There's another way. And then every time something dire happened to Jake, he either acted out of instinct and saved him, or he just, or they just got through the situation. And there was even a, a moment, like when he thought Jake was going to fall or something like that, and he's like, "Oh well, there it is," you know. <laughs> but he didn't. But it was here. It's like the Man in Black had to step in and say, "Hey, dummy, now is no, when you have to decide. <laughs> right. This is the decision that I've been hanging over your head all this time." what's it going to be? And he just like, without even thinking, just he jumps jump, over, jumps over Jake hanging and goes on his way. And here's Jake fall. And that's it. Yep. And, and barely even hears Jake fall. Right. Like yeah. Jake just says, there are other world than these. Yeah. Which is such a great line. And then he nopes out, right? Like you yeah. don't even hear him scream. You don't right. hear him splash, mm -hmm. which is weird because you, Roland has this piece just before that, where he imagines himself, Roland, falling off the trestle yeah and what it would be like. and what it would be like and he could feel the wind coming up and he could feel like he pisses his pants and, and he's moving so fast that, he can't even hear his own scream yeah and yeah. then he eventually crashes and there's a splash and right. he imagines all this but then when it happens to jake it's nothing like that right it's just yeah gone because maybe because jake's got some steel in him which he's already started to demonstrate so here's what i'm going to spring on you and i hadn't mentioned this before so in the last chapter it really sort of broke my heart when Roland sort of said in his mind, I'll well, take care. Like, I, I know that he's done for and I've, I'm no longer thinking of him as a boy. He's mm -hmm. just this piece that I need to, to get through. Right. As a reader, am I really supposed to care about Jake dying? Because he's already dead. Like, he's died once. Like, what, what, what am I supposed to imagine of him not dying? He's in a world that's not his own. It, it's not one that he could survive in by himself. No one's going to take him in. And he's already dead. Like, there's no positive outcome. So his death is sort of, for me as a reader, I'm wondering if it's a little meaningless. It does almost seem as he really, he's almost like a poker chip to us. I don't know. I guess you 
putting it that way, it just makes Jake simply into a plot device. And I think he's more than that. I don't think his death is meaningless. There, There is a lot that Roland has to struggle with and learn from and suffer through in his sacrifice of Jake. And I don't think that Roland would be the same character. And we certainly wouldn't know him the way we do if we didn't share that experience with him. But there's also the aspect of, the, of that this is a fantasy. The quest story in fantasy where a bunch of disparate characters join together to save the day is a classic trope. So why can't Roland gather people around himself to achieve his, his goal, starting with Jake? And so maybe Jake isn't going to die. You know, Maybe I can tell myself, despite everything that I'm being told here, Roland will change his mind at the last moment and say, no, Jake is more important, or there is a different way, there's a different path. And Jake will be my first companion on my quest rather than a poker chip on my quest. He seems more like plot dressing when you describe it like that. Like his there, his purpose there is to educate the main character, Roland. And he has no agency or character arc of his own. Fair enough. I guess I was more disappointed in this reading uh, in, that he very much seemed like, when I thought about it, I'm like, he's already dead. He doesn't seem to have a story arc other than dying. I mean, I guess and, you could make and, the same argument about the the town of Tull, right? Especially Allie. Yeah. But I, I think that the buildup is that we're supposed to care more about Jake. Definitely. And, and Because Roland cares more about Jake. Yes. But we as a reader are... So everything is still filtered through Roland. Mm-hmm. So I guess... I, I think in my mind, the scene is cool. It does add to Roland. But it does seem like Jake gets short shrift here, like, which is fair. I mean, he's an eleven-year-old who died twice now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But his character arc in this story, I think, is limited. It seemed like there should be more other than, "Hey, he's just here to mirror what Roland's life is like and be a sacrifice for Roland." And what does Roland learn from this? What does how, Jake get out of this? How different would the story be if Jake weren't in it? What if Roland went to the way station, found water and food? continued on his journey, went under the mountain, shot a sure. couple of slow mutants, pumped the hand car, and then found the man in black at the at the cave opening. You know, it's like, would it be the same story? It just seems like he needs some arc, I think. And I was a little disappointed, I guess, when I got to the end here hmm. of Jake. Yeah, I guess because it's through Roland's perspective. Jake does start to have an arc. I mean, he does start to learn about the world. He becomes connected to Ka for the first time and that starts to change how he sees things and understand things and he also seems to be uh, somehow gifted Roland talks about how Jake seems to have what he calls the touch mm. and that reminds him yet again of one of his childhood companions who seem to it's this almost like light ESP and so Jake can kind of just is it like the shinning maybe or is it like the shining we can't say shining you want to get sued <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite Simpsons episodes <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that uh, so Jake starts like he starts to to grow on his arc. He develops and connects with this world, with Roland's world. And then when Roland decides he's not Jake anymore, he's just the boy. Then I think his arc stops. His arc just it, it plateaus or it drops off. However, you want to graph it, it's that that's the end of his arc. Yeah. So I think it's in a way it's Roland who 
ends his arc or prevents him from completing it. Sure. I just think his first death seemed to have more meaning, even though it was a meaningless death. Mm-hmm. That the man in black caused it and pushed it out, but it, I think that had more impact on me as a reader. Like, oh my god, this boy been pushed out in the street by some guy for no reason and dies in this horrible way, as opposed to, hey, this kid falls and hey, Roland had to make a decision, but it's sort of not about Jake at that point. And I think that that lessens his death. Okay, I think that is a fair argument. Win this round. <laughs> <laughs> It's not about winning. So those are our three big set pieces. There's a lot of other interesting stuff happening in this chapter as well. Um, I've already mentioned how there's a lot of instances of time, and I do think that that's sort of a theme of this book is what does time mean? Mm-hmm. How you know? How does this, it relate in this world that has moved on? Yeah. What other things did you notice, Jay? Well, there, there's something that uh, I thought was kind of an ongoing theme of of this chapter especially but definitely of the the whole book so far is that roland has been suffering through various struggles and tragedies seemingly his whole life we we've only seen windows of of time in his own life things like his childhood before he became a gunslinger the moment that he did become a gunslinger and then the story that you know since he went arrived in tull basically uh, but he flashes back and he he keeps reminiscing about Ali and about Susan Delgado. You know, so we know that, that Roland has loved and lost and been betrayed. And, and there's a, a line that uh, was actually taken out of the original edition of the book that Roland says that love and dying have been my life. Mm. And I thought that that was a really great line. I thought that it was interesting and I'm still a little mystified why why King took that out. The reason why I think it really uh, stands out to me is that Roland states it as though it explains his whole life. It's like it's his rationale for everything he's done and and or will do. It's like, hey, you know, it's that's my story, love and dying, you know. And but when you think about it, it just like it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> right. It just means stuff has happened and but I still like it. It seems line. like court should smack him up the top yeah. side of the head and get over it, boy. Yeah, Move know? on. <laughs> so you had some love, so you you know, so you did some killing. That that's what a gunslinger does, you know. Yeah, Roland says it as if it explains everything in his life. But the way he says it, the the weight that he gives this line, it seems to say everything about him. And maybe in a way it kind of does because he is such a romantic figure, but it reminds me of Cheers. There's an episode of Cheers when, uh, you know how Norm always walks in and says a, a, a snappy line? Uh-huh. And he walks in and they ask Norm, hey, how's it going? He's like, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. They're like, so is everybody, Norm. He's like, oh, I guess I haven't seen much anything then. <laughs> <laughs> Same sort of thing, right? Yeah. Love and dying have been my life. Yeah. Yes, so is everybody's. Mm-hmm. Back of the line, gunslinger. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting because. And we're going to lose our uh, our clean iTunes rating for this. But then at the end of the chapter, after Jake dies, mm-hmm. Roland says, well, now my life will be killing and cunts from now on. And that seems a direct reflection of the living and dying, right? A little bit, yeah. yeah like- and, and I think he's also in that moment talking about how he's sort of going to bury his misery or hide from his shame by 
going from saloon to saloon and bed to bed. Right. And, you know, and uh, like as if the, that, that chase will distract him just enough to not feel the pain of what he is about to do or what yep. he has just what done. He has done. That tells us, I think, a lot about his character. He did not want to sacrifice Jake. And he realizes that it right before it happens or leading up to it, he's very torn. And then as soon as it happens, he's, I think he doesn't even have a chance to be devastated by it quite yet before, you know, the, right. the next chapter, but like he's not at all. Right. Like yeah. the, the chapter ends with them walking down to the yeah. hill and the, the, the man in black taunting him and saying, let's do this. Yeah. I mean, he's just standing right there. And of course, Roland shoots 12 shoots, times. He empties his guns on him. And then he's like, no, no, no. Although not. this, this, this reading, I wonder, and again, we don't know much about the man in black other than he's some sort of wizard mm -hmm. potentially. And I wonder, does Roland miss? Does he miss intentionally? Is it subconsciously that he's just sort of shooting at him or does the man in black make him miss in some way or do the bullets go right through him? Um, yeah, it, there's, I, it, no there's no explanation in the text. I'm going to be very interested to see how it's portrayed on screen. Yeah. Cause be that cool. might, there might be some, yeah, is it going to be like Westworld where like the bullets just go like poof, poof, poof? Or, right. Or is it going to be know. something magical or is it going to be, yeah, so. My personal uh, fan fiction or whatever on why I think it's the man in black is using some kind of magic to make either himself impervious or to just divert the bullets. Yeah. You know, it's like Roland, no matter how accurate he is, those bullets will just never hit him. No. Never hit the man in black. So. No. And you could just sort of seeing them, they're standing with no worries whatsoever that the just standing there smiling at roland mm -hmm. like eh, nice try but not yeah. gonna work <laughs> not gonna work a moment ago i talked about how roland thinks of himself as a romantic mm -hmm. yes um, and uh, i think that that comes up uh fairly often throughout the book especially when roland is just thinking of a description of his of himself um it, i think he sees this as a defining characteristic of what makes him tick and there's a a line in the, the chapter that Roland talks about the death of romance. And it makes me wonder, like he links it to civilization. The, the line in the book is he trailed off, unable to describe the change inherent in that featureless noun civilization, the death of romance and the lingering of its sterile carnal revenant. So here Roland is basically ruminating on the idea that civilization can't exist without romance. Hmm. And maybe he's biased in this because he sees romance as an important thing. It's an important part of his makeup. So therefore he's perhaps projecting that onto all of society that you can't have civilization without also having romance. And it made me wonder, like in the line, he calls civilization featureless. I wonder what why he, why Roland thinks that civilization is featureless. Mm. Um, and I also wonder, why do you think romance is a necessary part of civilization? I wonder if some of it is a spontaneity. Like, it does seem like when we're told the cotillion that's happening at the beginning where all the gunslingers are there with the women and, mm -hmm. and sort of the high society and Roland and his fellow trainees are sneaking up and looking at it. Everything has been done before, right? Yeah. He says, like, oh, we went up there thinking we were the first ones to know that we found the secret place where we could look in. Right. Dozens of boys had done it before us. It's all part of this thing. And same with the cotillion they were watching. 
These people have done these dances before and there's no more romance in it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. literally not because his mother is dancing with Martin. Or, and, or you and could say no... that there's a romance in the spectacle or, or, or in the routine, but... But you get the sense that even the people there aren't seeing it. Like they say, some of the young boys are still, younger gunslingers are still dancing, but most of the older men are still just sort of sitting there and watching it. The mm-hmm. same thing's been done before. And he he, he, start, he ruminates on the fact that, and the next year or two years later, there was nothing in that ballroom, right? Yeah, there was, it, it just, it was, it was a, all gone. The electricity yeah. was gone and everything. And so I don't know if some of it's the spontaneity, the fact that this has been a society that's been the same way for countless ages mm-hmm. and it's starting to fall apart because of all the things we talked about earlier, right? Like yeah. the, the, the society, the, the class structure, everything's just sort of not the same as it was and it's not holding together um, the way it did. And that was one of the lines that I had noticed that seemed to be almost a direct call out to Yates where the center does not hold, everything falls apart. Right. He has those two ideas in two sentences right back to back. And it's just sort of this whole world is moving on and even court realizes it. It's go, go, moving on on horseback, he says. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the romance does seem to be out of it. You know, for us as a reader, as an American reader, especially the Old West is sort of this romantic view of yeah. it. And this is very much calling on an Old West that isn't quite like that. And it's just sort of dull around the edges. Yeah, the the dictionary definition of romance, or one of the definitions is, a quality or feeling of mystery, excitement, and remoteness from everyday life. So, yeah, I think spontaneity is part of that. I think, I think uh, maybe the gritty challenges of everyday life in something like the Old West, I think, is why we as Americans see it as a romantic lifestyle. Yep. Whereas the reality is, it's basically like you're camping every day. Yeah, life, right. you know? And it's like, you know... And, we're used to our lives of living indoors and having showers every day and things like that. It's like, is it romantic or is it really just a rough life? And, you know, so, but I think that's part of it. There's, I think romance is sort of a, almost a, a denial of the reality and you're making it appealing in a way that it might maybe isn't really. Mm. And that could be part of, you know, the, the world moving on is like, oh yeah, the world kind of sucks, but we've <laughs> been able to pretend it doesn't for a while, yes. and now we can't really pretend anymore. And it is sort of odd, like, why are they having this dance? Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem quite appropriate that they're in this old castle that, you know, they talk about in the West, there's people, farmers who are barely subsiding, and beyond that, there's rebellion and fighting, and they're still going through this whole... But isn't this an element of high fantasy again? This is like the uh, the upper uppermost class in the castle yeah. having their you know let them eat cake type of thing. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's just like that's just what high society has always yeah. done, so we must do it. And right. Even though they're they're not wearing black ties and and patent leather shoes, these they're still dressed as cowboys and have their guns on their hips and yep. stuff like that. But when it's time for a waltz, they do a waltz. Right. And, you know, <laughs> you can't get away from the old traditions and societies. Right. It, it it reminds you of that story about the, the first settlers of Greenland were farmers originally. Mm. And they, their sheep all had died. It was, there was a bad winter and all their sheep had died. Okay. And they starved to death, even though they were, literally on one of the best fishing areas in the world but they didn't know how to but fish d- d- not that they didn't know how to fish they never ate fish because they thought it was beneath them and not good for uh, you like they were meat eaters why would you eat fish 
And so rather than go and eat the fish that could have saved their lives, they all starved to death. Meanwhile, there's probably one guy who was like, hey, have you tried an oyster? <laughs> Good stuff here. <laughs> there are oysters in Greenland? That might be a little bit too uh, far north. Too far north. I don't yeah. Know. What else did we have in this section? Well, like another kind of question about the death of romance is, uh, does Roland does Roland need to find love to achieve his goals? Or does he make out better in the long run by remaining a killing machine? And when we meet him, he is a killing machine. He has stripped away everything in his life. He's either lost or abandoned every friend. His entire world and society have crumbled around him. He's literally the last thing left. And he even says that. There's just me, there's the man in black, and there's the tower. And I'm not even totally sure about the tower. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Those are the three things that matter. Yeah. And I'm sure about two. <laughs> um, so when he meets Jake and then we see him together with Jake, we, we as the reader see a, a spark of maybe if there ever was a time when he could be this way, that he could return to being someone who could actually care for others and that other people could matter to him as much as anything else yeah. matters to him. But then he sacrifices Jake. And we're like, oh, have we just hit the reset button? Is this just going to be who Roland is? Or is this who Roland is and has always been? And that's just it. And we're going to watch this killing machine grind his way yeah. through this story, you know, <laughs> bullet after bullet. <laughs> or is it going to be watch this character grow by other people mm -hmm. and achieve his goals because of that growth? It, well, if we do, it's going to be interesting because there's only one other character alive at the end of this chapter yeah. besides him. So right. uh, there's not there's not that much unless he goes back across the desert and finds Brown and falls in love with him. Yeah. Hey, you desert dweller, what have we got here? But yeah, I, I do think it's interesting. He falls in love at the drop of a hat, it seems like. Mm -hmm. We get heard of Susan Delgado has been brought up numerous times. Yep. Allie and Tall, this other girl that we had never heard of before that Jake mocks him with is... Uh, you had to leave her for the tower, didn't you? Mm -hmm. Jake, he obviously had fallen in love with in a you know a more fatherly fashion. I mean, he does seem to fall have create these relationships. Yeah. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. He has empathy for people. Mm -hmm. um, but what does it mean? It, it, or is it, like you said, it's beyond him. He, these questions are much more important that he has. And we don't know what those questions are yet, right? Yeah. We know he has questions to ask, but we still don't know what those questions are other than they're about the tower. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hope we get to learn what some of those questions are. I sure hope so. Otherwise, now that he's what the finally caught up with the man. <laughs> Otherwise, what the hell's King doing if we're not going to get some of these answers? Yeah, and I don't think it's a spoiler to say that there are more books that follow this one. So there's got to be something that comes after this. All right. Any other thing? I thought it, the one sort of, it was, it was a little bit of a throwaway section, but when they're talking about uh, things that happened in their past, Roland talks about the time that he had to hang a knot man. Oh, right. And Jake's like, what's a knot man? And they're like, oh, you know, somebody you could feel but not see. And he's like, oh, invisible. And Roland had never heard the word invisible mm -hmm. before. They're like, well, how'd you, because he was, what was he hung for? He was hung for rape. And Jake's like, oh. I guess this, that I, would make it easy. That would it? make it easy. Be, I bet he'd be pretty good at that. He's like, how'd you catch him? Oh, that's a story for another time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I sure hope we get to hear that story because that sounds sort of cool. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're. Pumping the, the handle on a, on a hand car through a completely black uh, tunnel through a mountain. Nothing to do but wait until it's time to go to sleep again. How about a story? How about that nod man story? Because that sounds pretty cool. Mm -hmm. um, there's some interesting pieces with when they're in the subway, just sort of 
you know, I think you and I both have questions on how did the world move on and what is, what's it moved on from. Mm -hmm. And we get this sense that maybe there had been some sort of cataclysmic war. War, because they seem to think that there was gas involved and why all these people who were in the in the train station have died. They all seem to be wearing uniforms, although I couldn't tell if they were army uniforms or sort of train conductor uniforms. Yeah, Roland guessed that they were train employees, but yeah, I, it's, it, it's not clear because it, he wouldn't know what a train employee was. So, And also, I think either Jake or Roland, I can't remember which one, said they must have cleared the place out of civilians, civilians. and kept only these personnel behind. And that's why they were here to, to get poison right. gas. So when I think civilians, I include like, you know, the Railroad, MTA yeah, staff, right. like they would get evacuated too when the army comes in. To yeah. But it's interesting because it's this whole fairly extensive yeah, I was thinking train of it station, like, like right? Grand Central Station. Yeah, because there's a there's an ammunition store. There seems to be a newsstand. There's mm -hmm. all these things, but it's odd because one of the train tracks has come through a mountain that just follows a river, like a fairly long mountain. They've been traveling it through it in days, going 15 miles an hour on a handcart. Um, yeah. And it also makes you wonder, especially in light of the fact that Jake says there are other worlds than these. Where do all those other tunnels go? Because he only recognizes one of the ones, languages of one of the tunnels. Mm -hmm. Makes you wonder, did, if you would have taken one of the other tunnels, where would have that have led? Yeah. I think that might be a, too little of a connection between choosing a train track and choosing a world. I think that this Roland's world was a big place, is a big place, but was a much bigger place and before it moved on. And this was like Grand Central Station. And mm -hmm. it was that was a main depot where you could go from that point to any number of big cities right. uh, from that point. It's sort of odd it's in the mountains. Yeah, but maybe and that was the best way to get through. Yep, uh, that could be. It was pretty clear that this was created as long ago as like that, as the way station. The, the way station pump. with a water pump, yep. You know, like this goes back in time that far. So to that ancient, super advanced society and technology. They easily could have bored that hole in the mountain. They easily could have laid down train tracks for some super mag magnetic train right, right. or something like that that, mm. that moves at the speed of sound. And, and and then as the world moved on and all that stuff was forgotten and decayed, the tracks were still there and people kept using that until there weren't enough people to keep it together. And then now it's just full of slow mutants. And fossils. And fossils, yes, which we <laughs> assume is a mispronunciation of fossils, right? Yeah. Or Roland's understanding of that. There's an interesting uh, other world moving on piece with the Amoco gas pump, and he recalls a encounter he had with a hermit or crazy man yeah, who had started a religion with this gas pump that mm -hmm. had the Amoco lead free uh, slogan across it. Um, so we're getting more and more pieces of. What was this world moving on from? Mm -hmm. And like I said, I was very interested in the post world of, of Roland and what that was like. So we yeah. got a lot, a, it got filled out a lot in this chapter. We were just talking about civilization coming apart. There was a really interesting passage when Roland says, How we make large circles in earth for ourselves, he thought. Around we go, back to the start, and the start is there again. Resumption, which was ever the curse of daylight. So there's this resumption theme, which one of the front pages of this book is just resumption in big font. Right. As though that's something really important. Yes. Just like the number 19 
So here we go. There's just here's resumption in front of us. What does that really mean? Why is it important? But what kind of jumped out at me here was just the the choice of language where he says resumption is the curse of daylight. Didn't quite make sense of that and it also seemed counterintuitive. I think of the word resumption as starting over. It might be it's probably a, a positive thing, right. if not inherently negative. So like wouldn't resumption be the the curse or at least the opposite of darkness? That's sort of what my reading would be you as know? if the day starts over again, right? Yeah. You're looking at it from a glass half full or glass half empty perspective instead. Yeah. I don't know why resumption is the curse of daylight, but there it is. That's that's what <laughs> Roland thought. You know? But I thought the imagery of the making circles in the earth for ourselves that we just tread and retread and retread. Over and over. Just ending up right where we started just makes everything seem pretty futile and uh, <laughs> a little depressing. Maybe that's why it's the curse of daylight. You're never getting to the end. Of course, when uh, Roland was thinking these thoughts, he was in a tunnel under the mountain, <laughs> kind of feeling like he was buried in a tomb and uh, without any any daylight. So it's understandable that he had some uh, yeah maybe dark thoughts. Maybe he was uh, not so happy, and that kind of connects a little bit to like just the general disintegration of societal structure. You know, like just generally civilization is coming apart. Like Roland sees the the death of romance as a as an instigator to that. And then <clears throat> there's this resumption theme where everybody's just kind of stuck in a rut. And rather than improving through every iteration, things are just getting worse and worse and worse. And then and that's just leading to this overall disintegration. So like there's const there there at least was constant warfare, there's class infighting. It all adds up to the world moving on. Yep. Yeah, the the piece and this refers back to the the circle falling apart that I had mentioned before. All reports are bad and all of them palled before the heat that rested over this place of the center. Cattle lolled empty eyed in the pens of the stockyard. Pigs grunted listlessly, unmindful of knives wetted for the coming fall. People whined about taxes and conscription, as they always have, but there was an emptiness beneath the apathetic passion play of politics. The center had frayed like a rag rug. The lines and nets of mesh which held the last jewel of the breast of the world were unraveling. Things were not holding together. So that whole, not only is civilization falling apart, but nobody even seems to care. It's yeah. just whatever. Mm-hmm. Roland is the only one who doesn't, though, because he's the one who like looks at it and says, "Why are they going through the motions? This is just a play, a game." And you know, you've mentioned before about how he's set apart from his fellow trainees, but he's also set apart even from the elders. He really is a man alone. Mm-hmm. So I know we like to point out lines that catch our attention in the book, mm-hmm. and we've mentioned how, for the most part, we think Stephen King's a good writer. But I think I said like every once in a while he has one yeah. that maybe doesn't hit home the way it wants. Even Roland misses a shot every once in a while. Exactly. So I I think when they're talking about the slow mutants attacking, they say how they've got a hold of Jake and they're going to break him apart like a wishbone, only that won't be a great wish or some something. And it yeah. just it just sort of like, ugh. It's as bad <laughs> as my line at the beginning of the, this episode about reaching the end of the line. Uh-huh. <laughs> so why don't you uh, bring us home with a good line there, Jake? Or Jay. Uh, <laughs> Jake is on my mind. Yeah, Nothing clearly. bad is going to happen to Jay at the end of this episode. Don't worry. One line that I that I liked a lot was, harshness and sorrow are the purest kind of condemnation. Hmm. 
and I thought this was really powerful. The language in it isn't as poetic as some of the other great lines that I've, I've recorded, but I thought about how deeply meaningful this line is, um, that you can say, don't like that, or tell somebody to stop doing what they're doing, or, you, or ask them to change. But I think that the way this says that harshness and sorrow, it's just like you're a little bit gruff or, or, or stiff with the person, but more than that, you're deeply disappointed. And you express it through not even words, just body language. Yeah. Like, uh, And that is like truly a form of condemnation that is inescapable. And it may likely go unnoticed by the person you are condemning or the act that you are condemning. But it, it just really rang true to me in, in a way that just it was stating a fact so well that I, I just really liked the lines. And especially at the end, right? I mean, it's not like he's even grabbing for Jake and can't catch him and he falls yeah. to his death. He just jumps right over him. Uh-huh. That's the harshest thing, right? It's like, sorry, buddy. Mm-hmm. I'm done. Yeah. So we end this chapter with Jake at the bottom of a crevasse, dead. Yeah. Roland walking towards the man in black and the man in black entreating him on. Come, come, come. Right. You, we'll, we'll, we'll have a discussion. We'll have a palaver. And our next chapter is the final chapter of The Gunslinger. And it is a lot shorter than the other chapters in our reading thus far. So yes. not only are we going to do our analysis of that chapter but we're also going to look at the book as a whole take away our final thoughts on it and and see what we thought um Mm -hmm. we're looking for any feedback from our listeners on questions that they might have on the book that we didn't cover um thoughts that they might have things we may have missed um we're more than happy to start that discussion so if you would like to send in your questions via twitter at two guys dark tower or at our email, twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. We would appreciate that. But that is all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Sean. As always, links to all of our contact information is in the show notes. Join us for our next episode. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. <laughs>